We have certainly sung some amazing truths this morning, and we have this opportunity now to go to the Lord that we've been singing to and praising in prayer. So I ask if you would bow your heads and join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the way that you lead us to truth about you through it. So this week, as we collectively as a church have been preparing for 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we were struck and impressed by the fact that you are faithful to us, to yourself, to us individually, and to us as a church corporately. And we were reminded once again, not only are you faithful, and therefore your faithfulness is meant to be a source of comfort and hope to us, but that you also possess peace. And you give peace to your people at all times and in every way. Lord, we thank you for godly examples around us, uh, those men and women who have labored through the years and generations to contribute generously and willingly to the support of the ministry here at South Canyon. And we gather in a building that's paid for because of their thoughtfulness and mindfulness toward the kingdom of God. We thank you for those who are even now here in this room and participating in cheerfully supporting the work of this ministry for the furtherance of the gospel. We thank you for the godly examples, not only of those who have given of their time and resources, but also for those who have shared the gospel with us and for those among us who are sharing it with others, we give you thanks. We pray that your word would speed ahead, that your word would prepare hearts to hear and receive the gospel, that you would take your word into dark places where the need is great and there would be a bountiful harvest. Lord, we also pray this morning that you would protect those who are going in those places with the gospel, those far places and even those that are here, that you would give them peace, that you would bring people across their paths who are seeking to know the truth and that they might find peace in the faithful God. We also understand that the gospel is not good news to Satan and those who serve him. And so there is real pressure, there is real opposition to the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and preserve your witnesses. Our brothers and sisters who are serving in Africa or Asia, or the dark, unreached places of the Middle East, even the opposition that's, that's prevalent in Europe, a scoffing and a scorning of the gospel, even here within our own country and in the Americas as a whole. Or there are faithful men and women who are being sent and who are going and who are sharing and who are facing real opposition because of the name of Jesus. And so we pray that you would deliver them from evil and wicked men. We pray this morning that you would increase the heart of all your people to love you more and make us persevere in Christ. Help us to be what we cannot be apart from your grace. Put within our hearts 
a longing to know you better and to practice these spiritual activities that do lead us to places of humility and to places of understanding. Reading your word, praying, confessing sin, gathering with the church, gifts given to you to help us grow in our faith. We pray that you would enlarge our hearts for you this morning, that you would give us the capacity to love you more, to be more holy, to draw near to you, to mourn sin, not just in the world around us, but the sin that's in us, to treasure justice and righteousness. Remind us always that we walk by faith and not by sight, that we are your children because of your redeeming work and not our own efforts. So, Lord, when we are lukewarm and apathetic or even willfully deceptive and negligent, we pray that you would change us. Bring truth to bear in our lives and lead us to repent. Help us to walk in the power of your Spirit to increase not only our faith, but also our obedience. Help us to understand that we truly live only when we are living for you and everything else is but dust. Lord, we prayed this not only for the body at South Canyon Baptist Church, but we pray this for our brothers and sisters around this city and around this world. We pray that the gospel would be known and received, that it would be cherished and held in high regard, not only for the benefit of bringing peace into a violent and unjust world, but also, Lord, because the gospel saves sinners. And we long to see more people come to know you in the ways that we know you. We pray that you would help us, and we have confidence that because of your faithfulness, you have committed yourself to help us grow and do these things. And so, Lord, we thank you. You're not a God who is cruel and unkind. You are not a God who is aloof or distant. You are intimately involved. You, as we just sung, know all our ways. We praise you for that. Help us to live with confidence in that. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures and join me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This morning we're going to finish our series through these two short letters from Paul to the church in an ancient city called Thessalonica. This was a place that Paul uh, and his mission team traveled to and began sharing the gospel. It was what we would call today an unreached people group. It was a city that had not heard a clear proclamation that there is a holy God to whom all of us have sinned against And the judgment for that rebellion against him will lead to our deaths unless we shelter ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? He was a Jew from Nazareth, and he was not only just a man, but he was God in flesh. This was mind-blowing for the ancient Greeks or Romans. They understood that God would cohabitate with human They had all these views and myths about uh, gods and the, the playing around with humanity that they did, but the idea of there being God and man was, was just mind-blowing. 
So as Paul and his team are taking the gospel into a new city, people actually, because the Spirit of God is working to give truth and conviction when His Word is proclaimed, people are coming to embrace this. And then a church is birthed. But that church is so unique in a culture that is godless, doesn't like the idea of one God being above all gods, doesn't appreciate the idea of sin and judgment, nor does it accept Jesus as the means of reconciliation with that God. So the community begins to attack the church. And the believers are hearing the teaching that Jesus is going to come soon. He's going to rescue His people And yet they are suffering and they wonder how long. Then they're told it's already happened and they missed out. And Paul has to correct that, that Jesus has not returned. You didn't miss the train. As he concludes his letter, he wants to leave the church with a certain understanding of their responsibilities. And so as we consider this, think about this. Think of the various scenarios in which when you know you have a limited amount of time to complete a task, it orders how you use that time. Now you think about this. Knowing that you have two weeks of vacation coming is a bit different from knowing as a student you're in the last two weeks of school. Right? When projects and exams must be completed and turned in, where you have to study and there's only two weeks left to secure your grade, is different how you use that time than it is when you are planning a two-week vacation. Mom said you have 30 minutes to clean your room versus mom saying this weekend you're going to clean your room. You use time differently in those two scenarios. How one uses the fleeting and brief remaining days of fall is quite different than how one uses the beginning days of summer. So as we consider how we use time differently when we feel leisurely versus when we are rushed, I think it will help us sense Paul's desire that these believers should order their lives around God's plans and nothing else. Like every church since the church in Thessalonica, we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. We are facing persecution, hardships. We are confronted by false teaching which seeks to lead us away. We have our own innate sin nature that we are still trying to put to death. We struggle against sinful attitudes and actions. All these things threaten to prevent this church in Thessalonica and this church here in Rapid City and the church around the world It threatens to prevent us from living out our divine calling. And so, as Paul concludes his letter, he summarizes his argument and he roots his instructions in the character of God. So, here's the question I want to ask. I want us to consider this morning. How should we live as we expectantly wait our Lord's return? Maybe you haven't thought about that. You've got plans this afternoon, places to be, things to do, fish to catch, water to enjoy, projects to wrap up. But how should we live as we expectantly wait for the Lord's return? 
I think Paul's answer is, because God is faithful, we are called to be faithful. And what that looks like is three practices in the text, followed by one glorious experience. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, we see the practice of being a people marked by continually offering gospel-centered prayer. Verses 3 through 5, we ought to be people who possess an abiding confidence in God's faithfulness. And then verses 6 through 15, a third practice is we ought to be known as God-honoring, law-abiding, productive people, as Paul addresses the issue of laziness and idleness and busybodies within the church. And the result, not the result, I shouldn't say that, the reality is we will experience the peace of God, verses 16 through 18. So here's Paul moving us through a passage. He wants to summarize the argument of his text. Jesus hasn't returned, so we've got a lot of life to live. And as he has called us to live as his witnesses, we have to order our lives around his plans and purposes. As redeemed people, we are to live as redeemed people. So here's the message that Paul wants for us to hear, not only for the Thessalonians, but God has preserved his word for our benefit. So please follow along as I read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2, uh, or 1 through 5 at this point. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We're going to spend a brief period of time on the first two points, the first two practices, as it were, that Paul is alluding to here in verses 1 through 5. The the second half of the sermon is going to take much more time as we work through verses 6 through 15, and then verses 16 through 18. So here's the three practices of what it looks like to be faithful. Now, again, this isn't all-encompassing. This isn't just the three things that any Christian should do. So if you like lists, please set them aside and don't think of this as definitive. This is Paul addressing a circumstance within a church, and so it's tailored to meet their needs, but it is still very applicable to us today. First, we ought to be a people marked by continually offering gospel-centered prayers. I see that in the first two verses. Paul says, let us pray. Brothers, pray for us. There's a command there. It's in the imperative. He's asking that they would pray that God's word would go forth and be well received. He also asks them to pray that God would remove hindrances to the gospel. That God would protect those who take the gospel to the lost. The phrase, for not all have faith, has this dual reality. It explains the request to pray for deliverance from wicked men because not all have the faith, right? 
And that would be expected. You should expect that if people don't have the faith, they're going to not really welcome it. But it also has a second meaning. The request to pray that the Word would spread and be glorified is because the need is that not all have the faith. When you pray, we often tend to pray for a very small circle. It's human nature. We pray for ourselves, what we may have to do today. We pray for our families, protection. God would save our children. God would help them navigate difficult circumstances in life. But here Paul is instructing us how we ought to pray as a church for the gospel to go forth and be well received. And practically speaking, we do this We emphasize the gospel and gospel-centered prayers in our corporate gatherings. So, in our pastoral prayers, they are typically longer than other prayers throughout our service because we are praying for gospel efforts here and abroad. And we want to model to the congregation how to offer gospel-centered prayers. It can be as simple as, Jesus saved the lost. And it can be as involved as knowing the details of brothers and sisters who we have sent out with our mission dollars through the IMB or as a church, whether they're overseas or they're here, and we are praying that the Word may work in their lives. But that's not just us listening to gospel-centered prayers. We also, as a church, have the opportunity to participate and lift up gospel-centered prayers when we gather on Sunday nights. We now, the congregation is setting the tone. The congregation is praying, not the pastors. Sunday nights, the congregation is praying for the spread of the gospel, the removal of hindrances to it and the endurance and protection of those who share it. So we see that this is really important. And it's important because without prayers like this, the Word, the ministry of the Word, is hindered. Never think for a moment that any person has such gifting that they alone can work God's plan in this world by those gifts. If you ever come into a service here and the Word of God is so front and center in your life, never for a moment believe it is because of the skill of the speaker, it is because of the prayer of God's people that the gospel would work. And if we are not praying for these gatherings, then shame on us. We've been instructed that this is how we are to occupy ourselves until the Lord returns. To be praying that more and more people will know it and more and those people who oppose it, that God would deliver His messengers from them. Secondly, verses 3 through 5, we see that we ought to be people who possess this abiding confidence in God's faithfulness. You know, we all face hardships. This church was being persecuted for their faith. I'm not aware, I've not heard any stories of anybody yet in our congregation who is being persecuted for loving Jesus. It may be happening, I may be unaware of it. You may be dealing with that with friends or coworkers. But the reality is, God is speaking to a people 
who, like us, need to have an abiding confidence in God's faithfulness. You, you look at verse 3 again. I think it's by no mistake that Paul doesn't contrast those who don't have faith, who not only oppose the gospel, but don't have faith who need the gospel, and then he contrasts that with a God who is faithful, who is the essence of faith. He is the subject, the object of our faith, and then his character is that of one who is faithful. So you may have been betrayed by a, a, a spouse, a parent, a child, a brother, a friend, a sister, whomever, but God is faithful. And Paul's confidence is based on God's faithfulness to strengthen and preserve believers in verse 3. And that truth, that truth that God himself is faithful ought to provide a real and abiding confidence that he will strengthen and preserve us, as Paul goes on to say in these verses. Believers ought to have every confidence that the sin that you are struggling with today will not own you. It will not have victory over you. God is faithful. He will help you conquer it. He will deliver you from it. Believers who are struggling, whether or not God will allow them as they question the faith, as they wrestle with things that they're hearing at the university level, or the, re- the arguments that society makes that God, if he was good, would not let bad things happen. And it's causing them to question their faith. God's word is so powerful and God is so faithful, he will preserve the faith of those who are questioning. Because they're his. Paul's confident that the Thessalonians are doing and will continue to do what the apostle has taught them in verse 4. Because it's God who has given them the power to do good. It's God who leads them to love Him more and makes us endure in Christ. Everyone who has heard and received the gospel has the responsibility to do the things that are taught in Scripture in accordance with in accordance with the gospel. So that is praying gospel-centered prayers. It is what we see in verses 6 through 15, being industrious and obedient to God. It is what Paul speaks of in his first letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to abstain from sexual immorality. You see, the, the Christian life is not a theoretical one. It's to be lived out and practiced in our homes and in our communities. And Paul has this confident prayer in verse 5 that God will, in fact, draw His people closer to Himself and to greater obedience in Christ. Because what happens is, the more you and I increasingly grasp God's faithfulness and God's gracious gifting of power to us, then it changes us. We've all been treated by someone who's very performance-based. I'm sure that you've known someone who, as long as you are doing what they want, things are good. But as soon as you fail to live up to their expectations, it goes sideways. And it's not that God winks at sin and turns a blind eye to it, but that God loves us knowing that we will sin. It's not that he's setting us up for perfection. He knows all our ways, and yet he still chooses to love us. When you get that, when you know that in the very core of who you are, that changes you. 
It's not about me and my obedience. It's about God's graciousness. It's His mercy. It's His love. It's His faithfulness. And I'm drawn to that more and more. And if this God loves me in spite of who I am, how can I not then serve Him? How can I not go and share this good God with somebody else? Paul wants the church to get this. The more we know God as a faithful God, the more we experience His power in us, the more we will grow in our obedience as a right response to this grace. Let's look at verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any one of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul is teaching how the church ought to live in this interim time between their conversion and the Lord's return. A people who are marked by continually offering gospel-centered prayers. A people who possess an abiding confidence in God's faithfulness. And now, here we see his third point. We ought to be known as a productive people. We ought to be known as people who are attached to Christ and who live according to His standards and His expectations. And so there's this call to a conduct. And Paul modeled this when he established the church in Thessalonica. We see this in verses 6-8. through eight. The team had used their skills, evidently, their trade, to meet their own financial needs. They weren't asking these new believers to support them, they were doing what, what we see many missionaries do today when entering an unreached area. They have a trade they ply. They have financial backing by other ministry partners that enable them to be financially secure. They are not a burden to the people they are trying to reach. And you think about this. This is simple, since there were no believers in Thessalonica, Paul's circumstances look dramatically different than, than our experience here today at South Canyon Baptist Church. This church began through a home Bible study in the 50s. As it's matured through the years, it can now support pastors and staff. In addition to mission efforts, both local and abroad. But as we look at verse 9... To be clear, once a church was established, Paul and his companions could have asked 
for support. In that day, philosophers and religious teachers were often supported by their followers or their students, which means it would have been custom for Paul and his companions to ask these new Christians to sustain them, but they chose not to do it. Now, we know in other places in the Scriptures that Paul did receive financial support from those that he was ministering to. So we can only guess that the reason Paul did what he did and that their mission team supported themselves was either because he saw and knew of unhealthy practices in the culture of Thessalonica or whether they were within this new congregation and he saw deficiencies in people's understanding of a work ethic. In any event, the team decided to provide for themselves and to be an example for these new believers to imitate. So as we get down to verses 10 through 15, we see that Paul goes back to his teaching, this command in verse 6, and he returns by reminding the church both what he had previously taught them in 1 Thessalonians and even what he taught them when they were there in their presence back many months or perhaps a year ago. Paul has to rebuke those within the congregation who aren't obeying the teaching on work and who aren't practicing what it means to follow Christ. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And again, before we get into that, I want to be clear. We touched upon this in 1 Thessalonians. To receive help from the church is not wrong or sinful. The church is here to help care for one another and to bear each other's burdens, and sometimes that does involve financial help. So if you've been helped by South Canyon, praise God for that. Praise God for the obedience of his people to give charitably. The problem that Paul is addressing is that there are some who have not only the ability, but the opportunity to meet their own needs, and they refuse to do so. They expect others to provide for them. If Jesus is coming soon, why work? Why don't we just all go up to... Harney Peak or Black Elk Peak and just wait. I've been there. There's not enough food and water. Someone's going to have to give us resources. Not only were they not working, but this word busybody, you're probably familiar with the term. It means getting into other people's business. And because they have all this extra time on their hands... What, what, what should we do with that time? Should we be praying? Should we have this confidence that God's faithful? He's going to help us through this season of opposition. He's going to keep our faith intact until we see Him. Should we be working? No, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to start messing around within the church and getting in people's business and creating problems. And Paul says this ought not to be. He rebukes them. And then notice in verse 13, he follows this up with an encouragement. Do not grow weary in doing good, brothers. And then 14 and 15 also provides a practical counsel. 
So Paul isn't just, hey, it's the bad people, the the people who are doing wrong things that always get the attention. Paul wants to build up this church. Some of us are really, really in tune with what Paul has been saying. Hey, we pray that God's Word would go forth, and we pray for our missionaries. We pray for these gatherings. We pray for gospel efforts, redeeming grace, or other places. We are confident that God is faithful. We, we trust and we've known the Lord and we've walked with Him. We're working hard. Paul's like, I just don't want to lecture the church. I also want to encourage the church. Some of us are doing really good things. Following Christ isn't easy. The church is under pressure from outside and it's facing frustrations inside. And he says, hey, brothers, don't get weary Remember, God is faithful. He will increase your love for Himself. He will enable you to be strengthened in Christ. He will help you keep doing what is right. And Paul, knowing human nature and knowing this congregation in particular, realizes that sometimes teaching isn't just enough to bring correction. Sometimes consequences may also be required. So if you look at verses 14 and 15, Paul provides a pattern for them to follow in dealing with those who refuse to abandon their sinful ways. He says, take note of that person. If they don't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Paul is pointing out that there's a real example of church discipline. Church discipline isn't always just, uh, you know, catastrophic events. It can be for small things, as we put it, small in our mind. The withdrawal of fellowship coupled with warnings, as Paul says in verse 15, are intended to isolate these believers and bring attention to their sin. The goal is that they would humble themselves and repent. And Paul urges them to keep in mind that this is an erring brother, not an enemy. He is a believer. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul mentions this. We see it in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. And you think about this, how how does shunning someone prove effective? I mean, we live in a cancel culture. You can block someone on Facebook. You can stop following somebody and, and, and does that really change anything? I want to work our way back. Think of the Amish in our country. Now, we lived in Pennsylvania for five years when I was in grad school. And we would be just an hour or so from Lancaster, which was this big mecca for the Amish in Pennsylvania. Even where we lived in Indiana, most re- more recently, there were Amish communities around us and in Ohio. The bonds that are formed within the Amish community are so strong to build love, respect, and honor that to be put outside of that is literally to enter a foreign world. I mean, they speak another language. They have different customs. They dress differently. When someone is banned from the community, you're no longer welcome in that community, and guess what? You don't fit into the culture of the world either. You are on an island. They're marked. These people are Christians. The the people in in Paul's letter here, they are Christians. 
They have been marked by the world as Christians, and so they're being attacked. And let me just say, the world isn't really eager to have them back with them either. And so if they get put outside of this new community within the church, and remember, Paul has often encouraged them and um, applauded the fact that they do love one another, but to be isolated from that community and to not fit into this one would be very, very troubling. And so Paul says this is going to provide the reality check that's needed. And we could go into all kinds of practical outworking of church discipline, but let it suffice to say the Scriptures are clear that the church both has the authority and the responsibility to correct those who refuse to walk in obedience to the Lord and His teaching. And so as we wait for the Lord's return, the text has called us to three practical realities, practices to occupy ourselves with. Gospel-centered prayers, holding fast to the truth that God is faithful, and to working hard and providing for ourselves. And now we discover this glorious reality. Looking at verses 16 through 18, now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. Genuineness in every letter of mine, it is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We will experience the peace of God. This is a glorious reality. And let me be very clear this is not the byproduct, it is not the result of us doing things. We pray so many prayers. We have confidence in God, we're busy working, and then the formula produces peace. Now, that's not the reality. The reality is that peace comes from the Lord of peace. You see that in verse 15, or verse 16. That's Paul's understanding. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. And in verse 18, Paul does what he's repeatedly done in both letters. To the Thessalonians, and twice already in this very chapter, in verses 6 and 12, he identifies Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look at Jesus' life, we will see that it testifies to the fact that he possesses peace. If you would, go to Mark, just as an illustration. Mark chapter 4 Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 through 41, we see this account of Jesus in a boat. Now, it's not re-preaching Joel's message from last week. It's a different story, but nonetheless, one that is appropriate to our time this morning. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, again, right? We got a boat at sea, a storm is swamping the boat, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion. You there? And he awoke 
and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, let's be clear. It wasn't fatigue that allowed Jesus to sleep during a storm. It was peace that Jesus possessed. Going back to our opening observation of what you would do with the time if you knew you only had so much time to accomplish a task. Jesus knew God's plan for his life because Jesus was God. We're told that in eternity past, he and the Father created this plan of redeeming a fallen world. Before the world had been created, Paul says in his opening letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Before the foundations of the earth, God has chosen people to be his people through Jesus. And so here's Jesus in the midst of what seems chaos to the people around him, totally asleep because he knows not a hair of his head will fall. He can't be touched until his time. That gave him peace. Whether he's casting out calming seas, whether he's casting out demons or standing before his enemies, even as he went to the cross, we see time and time again that Jesus had peace. And, and the peace that he has is a real peace, so much so that he could speak to the weather and it calms. So much that he could speak to troubled people and bring comfort. Jesus possessed an absolute and unshakable confidence in his relationship with the Father, in his identity as the sinless Son of God, in his purpose in coming, in the righteousness of his work, and in his ultimate glory, that nothing could disrupt him. Nothing could set him off. Nothing could upset him. He possessed all this and more, which is why he had peace no matter the circumstances. Now, we see from this example in Mark and many others in the New Testament that Jesus possessed peace, but he can also give peace. And this is best understood by the message of the gospel because in the gospel, we understand that we have alienated ourselves against God by our disobedience. We have rebelled against Him. In fact, we have thumbed our nose at Him. We flipped Him off, as it were, and we've told Him we want nothing to do with Him, and therefore, we have made ourselves enemies of God. And Jesus is able to reconcile sinners to a Savior. Paul uses... Going back to our text in 2 Thessalonians, Paul uses this word direct in verse 5. I did some digging. It only appears in this form three times in the New Testament. Paul uses it twice in his letters, 1 Thessalonians 3, and then here in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians. The only other occurrence is in Luke's gospel, in Luke 1.79. This word direct 
Paul's uses are very similar. They refer to God the Father and the Lord Jesus guiding, leading, directing believers into certain actions, preventing things, helping them, preserving them. Luke's reference is to John the Baptist's preaching of Jesus, and he's described this way, as a Savior who would give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's the point. Luke and Paul both understand the gospel in the same way, that Jesus alone is the single person who is able to free enslaved people and to guide them into a way of peace. He did it with Israel in the Old Testament through the Exodus. He does it through the gospel of Jesus preached to the nations where people who are far from God can be brought near. He willingly laid down His life as a payment for our sin. And He committed Himself to the plan of God so that He would be the means by which God could reconcile sinners to Himself. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you, you will have a peace that does pass all understanding when God's Spirit gives you faith to repent and receive the salvation found in Jesus. Pray that God would do this. Don't just walk out there and say, maybe it will happen today, I wonder how. Seek it. Cry out for it. Beg God to open your eyes to the truth. Help Him to show you that by your actions and your attitudes, how you have offended Him. Ask God to give you the peace that He promises to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, Life batters us like the sea hits the shore. We're not promised ease, but we are promised peace. You have confidence, Christian, that God has forgiven all your sins, not just those that you've done, but those even that you will do. Yet you may not have peace when times are tough. Some of us are weary from fighting spiritual battles against the flesh. Some of us are weary in doing good, and it just seems like there's just an ounce of good versus a pound of evil in this world in this day. Some of us are grieved over the godly sorrow of seeing injustice and evil in this world. Even physical pain and suffering can rob us of peace. Well, know this, beloved. We can have peace at all times and in every way. Now, I've no doubt that each of us as Christians have experienced this peace of God at some point in time. In a great trial or trouble, God has just so worked in your life that you're able to weather that storm. But then the question is, well, why doesn't that last? Remember what Paul said earlier, God is faithful, verse 3. He only does what is best. And what God does is He intends to teach us that like Israel in the wilderness, who lived in daily dependence on Him through the manna, who had to be led by Him through a dry and desert wasteland to where springs of water could be found, so we too also live in daily dependence on Him. And so we must continually return to His Word daily. And we must continually return to the fellowship of the saints weekly. And we must daily walk in obedience. 
For it is in God's Word and the presence of His people and a clear conscience that we are walking in obedience that we are reminded what peace really is. Here's what real peace is. Real peace is the certainty of God's love and the salvation that He promises to us through Jesus. Real peace is the certainty that we will have life with Him because of Jesus. We're also reminded where peace is found in the text. The the peace is not found in the world. It's not going back into the world and walking away from Christianity when it gets tough. It is not by finding a new spouse. It is not by going and indulging in porn. It's not by going back to drink. It is not by reassociating yourself with these friends. Real peace is found in Jesus. And where peace is not found is anything but Jesus and everything but Jesus. When we don't have peace, the fall is not with God, it's with us. And we may have forsaken God. And because we have lacked fellowship with Him, it's bringing us shame, much like the idle busybodies in the text. We're not walking with the Lord, and we're apart from Him, and we feel that distance, and there's real grief because we should be back where we belong. We may have also allowed ourselves to become enamored by the pleasures of this world or discouraged by the evil in it. Regardless of the reason, in every circumstance and at all times, we can expect peace when our eyes are fixed on Christ alone. And the means, and the reason that I can say this, that we will have this peace, is because what Paul says here, that God is with us. Look again at verse 16. The Lord be with you all. That's not a wish that Paul's saying, I hope he shows up. I hope that God is with you when you have these hard moments. It is a confidence that the Lord is indeed with us. Reading in my Bible this week in, um, in Acts, I can't remember if it was 9 or 10, it was right after Paul's blindness. And he's in the city of Damascus, and God speaks to a, a Christian named Ananias. And he says, I want you to go find this guy, and I want you to lay hands on him, pray over him, and welcome him to the Christians. Uh, God, you don't know who this guy is. He's bad news. He was sent here to take us to prison, to to eradicate Christianity. What's interesting is God appears to Ananias in a vision, and God says this to him. Paul is right now praying for help. And I, I was just struck by the fact that Here's God talking to someone while God is listening to a prayer. And what does that mean? How does that apply to our text? Simply this. God knows you. We sang it, right? He knows all our ways. And He is with us in every circumstance. And if we get this, that that God is faithful and that He is involved with us, how can we not have peace in spite of the most harsh and difficult of circumstances? He was with us as seen in the exodus from Egypt. He is the Son. His name, Jesus, Emmanuel, means God is with us in Matthew's gospel. This, that Jesus brought no small measure of peace to the people he taught and healed. That God has given us his Holy Spirit who is a comforter, not a blanket, but one who salves our souls, one who heals and sanctifies and seals us. 
God says that my power is going to allow you to say no to your flesh and yes to God's Spirit. You see, the, the, the Word is teaching us that we have this personal God. We don't worship a dead teacher. We don't follow a moral code or an impersonal deity that we worship. We worship the living and relational Creator. And God has designed us to be in relationship with Him, to know Him, and live for His glory. Even as they suffered for His name, God gave the apostles and the church the joy of His presence and peace. And He says, I will do that for you as well. His Word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a comfort, a word of promise. It's a word of hope, of victory, and rescue. His Spirit takes this very word, gives us understanding as it applies it to our lives, and the Spirit and the Son are both interceding for us. God is not against us. He is for us, Christian. And as we experience His presence, we will have peace. We're going to sing this song after communion. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground is firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Lord, we pray for the power of God to be upon your people, that you would give us peace. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in, in the calling that you've called us to while we wait expectantly for your return. Help us not to become so preoccupied with the things, the mundane things of our life. Even the important things of this world, Lord, they pale in comparison to that eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us. So, Lord, help us to use the time you've given us, however many months it may be, years or decades it may be. Let us be found faithful just as you are faithful. We ask this, Lord. We ask this not only for our good, but for the glory of your name. And we pray that your word would make more and more of your people. That you would redeem and reconcile them. Bringing lost to a saving knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.